0: Hello, and welcome to The Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Greetings, everybody. This is The Reorient Podcast. My name is Jesse Friedlander. The conversation with Bill Hayton that we're about to have takes place on 18th of May, 2022. Bill Hayton is a very experienced journalist who has over a decade uh, covering the world with the BBC. He's also a prolific writer who's written, I believe, three books on Asia, most notably Vietnam Rising Dragon, published in 2010, The South China Sea, The Struggle for Power in Asia in 2014, and a book called The Invention of China, published in 2020. I believe they were all published by Yale University Press, all very interesting and well-written and very relevant to uh, many of the discussions that we're having today in regards to Reorient and the rise of Asia. So Bill Hayton, welcome to the Reorient podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here
0: so bill just i'd like to ask you before we start our q a just to give us a brief background on yourself your journey and how you became interested in a writer focused on asia
1: well i became a journalist i guess first of all in about 1995 something like that and my original interest was in the middle east and then i became interested in developments in central and eastern europe as uh, I guess the the Balkan wars ended and uh, those countries started to join the European Union. It wasn't until 2006 that I really uh, began to specialise in Southeast Asia. That was the year that I started working as the BBC reporter in Hanoi, Vietnam, and I spent a year there. Uh, And then I decided to write a book about the experience and and what I had learned in Vietnam uh, after that. And that was Vietnam Rising Dragon, which you very kindly just mentioned. Um, and surprisingly, it's still the only book on contemporary Vietnam that's been published in the last uh, decade, really, that looks at the, the politics and the economics. Um, so I did a second edition of that, which, uh, which came out last year as well. And I've just finished uh, a fourth book, uh, which uh, maybe I didn't tell you about, uh, which is A Brief History of Vietnam, which is going to be coming out uh, shortly, uh, a bit later in 2022. So I started to specialize in Southeast Asia from then on. Uh, I wrote a book on the South China Sea Disputes, which came out in uh, 2014. And really I've been doing a lot of talking about the South China Sea ever since, and researching the history. Um, And then researching that bit of history led me into looking at the history of China as a whole, uh, which led to writing that book, The Invention of China, which is really uh, an introduction to Chinese nationalism and the hybrid origins, the, the fact that uh, you know, Chinese reformers and revolutionaries were inspired by their contact with outsiders and with Western thinking at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And that's really the origins of Chinese nationalism. Um, so, I, I, since then, I, I've returned just to write this uh, brief history of Vietnam book. Um, in between times, I spent a year in, in Myanmar working on media reform there, not perhaps very successfully, given what's happened since. Um, but, uh, I've kind of maintained an interest in, in Southeast Asia and I'm an associate fellow with the Asia Pacific program at Chatham house, the think tank here in London, uh, which keeps me focused on the region as well.
0: So you've been a prolific, uh, writer. Um, I know how difficult it is to write even short articles, much less books. And, um, you seem to have a passion for Asia, um, yourself having worked all over the world, I believe, um, in the Middle East, uh, Central Europe and the Balkans. So what is it about Asia that um, led you to you know, focus on this region, given that you've had a, a global you worked all over the world?
1: Well, initially it was uh, it was a coincidence. Truly, really. um, we were my wife and I were looking for a place to to go and spend a year, um, and she's an academic and she had a connection in Vietnam, and that's what led us to Vietnam. If it hadn't been Vietnam, you know, I could have been writing about Peru or you know Central Africa or something. Um, but that that was it was a sort of you know a dart and a map type thing to begin with. Um, but then you know, having decided to go there, I put some time into trying to learn the language and studying you know history and present. North and then that led to a uh, writing uh, about it, um, and then staying interested you know, for quite a long time. Because you know Vietnam is incredibly underserved when it comes to uh, independent analysis. I mean, it's the fifteenth most populous country in the world, and yet there are about five English-speaking, you know, accredited journalists there. You know, compare that to any other country almost in the world, um, and that's a tiny number. So there's very few people that write about Vietnam at all. And very few that write about it with any kind of critical insight.
0: Yes, and uh, interestingly enough, um, we've actually recently had, and not yet published, soon to be published, um, an interview with the former U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, Ted Osius, and he shared with us um, a lot. He's also he's published a book as well uh, about Vietnam, and um, you know, very interesting and poorly understood uh, by the United States. Um, you know, despite our um, the history of, of U.S. Involvement in Vietnam, primarily being uh, the Viet, you know, in terms of our knowledge, is in the context of the Vietnam War. um, But but uh, few Americans and perhaps people throughout you know the Western world understand much about Vietnam's history or other aspects of Vietnam, certainly Vietnam today. So um, uh, certainly it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, One interesting aspect about Vietnam, and this perhaps might be a good segue to uh, talking about the book on the South China Sea, is Vietnam has historically fought over 20 wars with China um, over millennia. And it's uh, fiercely you know fought for its um independence um not only against china but you know later against uh french colonization and and uh you could say against the uh, united states and its allies uh involvement there so it's uh it's it's a it's a fascinating um country given its its history of of really being in in a long period of almost uh of repeated conflict with its neighbors
1: yeah except a lot just having re- finished this brief history of Vietnam, you kinda of have to problematize some of that. I mean, Vietnam only emerges as Vietnam at the beginning of the nineteenth century um, before then, you have a state that doesn't call itself Vietnam or rival states um you have local leaders, you have some that kind of claim uh to be part of if you like a you know a kind of Chinese uh civilization world in a confucian world if you like um and others that resist it and then you have different you know let's call them vietnamese states that fight against each other some of which you know uh get support from uh, across the the, the mountains uh, in china so this idea that there's always been a vietnam and there's always been a china and they've always been antagonistic towards one another i think is a bit of a modern invention one has to be a bit more kind of um sort of uh, flexible in the way you interpret the past, I think, to, to look at this. But yeah, certainly, you know, during the 20th century, um, you know, there, you know, Vietnam has been, you know, it's, you know, it's famous, I guess, because it was the scene of an incredibly bloody series of wars um, which drew in outside involvement. Um, but I don't think, I, I choose not to see it as a simple country called Vietnam that was opposed to outside intervention. There were it was also a fight about the ways of being Vietnamese. You know, there were, there were different versions of Vietnam uh, inside the country between you know, 1945 and 1975. Um, and that was why the country became so bloody and so, um, uh, you know, kind of so intractable.
0: So um, there's a, a theme um, in your books in, in which you just mentioned, um, which is that um, uh, we typically uh, we you know globally uh, are looking through the the modern lens, which whereby the world is is defined by nation states, which is a relatively recent phenomenon, and each country, each sort of land area, indeed sea area uh, in the world with maybe very, very tiny exceptions is controlled by a political entity. Those political entities have inherited uh, a situation, uh, geogra- geographical uh, population, culture, et cetera, from previous political entities that were there. And maybe those political entities have morphed into something else, maybe they disappeared. And it, it's very interesting um, to sort of think about what the political entity actually represents. Um, so as you mentioned about Vietnam, uh, you know the political entity today is is very different than what was controlling those same sort of land masses and 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 the ancestors of those people h- historically um, just because you brought up the topic i 'm curious is there a um, in your studies and work is there a a heartland in, in most political entities that represents the, uh, the consensus or um, almost the essence of the pure of, of, of that political or that the political entity is trying to represent so we often hear about in each country's the heartland um, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm curious what, what your view is on that on that within Asian context I,
1: I think it's a really good question actually, and I think a lot of the way we write about history, the way people interpret history today does try to find some kind of essence uh, to a country but at the same time I'm, I'm a big fan of hybridity and using hybridity as a means of understanding history so for example I mean if we take the Vietnamese context I mean I, I kind of I see four worlds in, in modern Vietnam and, and maybe even then I'm, I'm oversimplifying I see a kind of lowland a sort of northern uh, culture based around the Red River Delta. I see an upland culture uh, or cultures in upland world, you know, with different groups of people that inhabited sort of the land above 300 metres above sea level, let's say. Um, I see a sort of central coastal shampoo world inhabited by a different group of people. And then there was a sort of southern uh, Funan slash Khmer world, again, inhabited by a different group of people. And so modern Vietnam incorporates these four worlds, um, and there's a sort of popular narrative which is that the Viet- the northern lowland culture, marched to the south, and sort of you know incorporated and civilized these these people. But actually, it's much more two way than that, that. There was giving in both directions, and the sort of. The Southern Vietnamese and the Central Vietnamese culture, um, which was you know uh, trading based, uh, much more based on connections with other places around South China Sea and, and inland, also gave a lot to uh, what we now call Vietnamese culture. So the idea that there's a single source. Um, of pure culture I I think is wrong Um, and we need to focus more on hybridity Um, and I think that's what I was trying to do with the book about China too was to show how a lot of what we see as modern Chinese ideas about nation and the and the sort of trying to discern a a route uh, you know literally an ROOT like a like a plant root for the nation That was really a sort of late 19th and early 20th century invention based on European models too, where they were also trying to find the essence of the nation and they discounted uh, ideas about hybridity in the process.
0: So can those two coexist that you can have hybridity and um, to some extent heterogeneity uh, but also have a a core essence because at the end of the day what are the political entities um, you know how do they achieve some sort of guiding uh, principles and the cultures that they value the most other than without having a, a, a heartland
1: but it's a really good question, isn't it? I think, don't think it's one that any state has successfully answered. I mean, you know, I'm talking to you from Europe and I guess Europe has, to a large degree, embraced hybridity. You know, the, the point of the European Union was to break down international boundaries, uh, reduce the you know, national questions and uh, make minorities feel welcome, regardless of whether they sat on one side of a line or, or not. Um, but maybe that led to a certain kind of aimlessness, you know, that there was, you know, perhaps these states, you know, lost the sense of national purpose. And yet, look at the Chinese example, you know, where and we're seeing under Xi Jinping a, you know, a really, uh, you know, determined attempt to impose some kind of homogeneity on Chinese culture, you know, kind of in. We see this in Xinjiang with with Muslims, but also with with other minorities to make them Chinese, and to. And, and that definition of what Chineseness is, is very much a kind of lowland um, uh, sort of heartland, if you like, vision of of, of, uh, of of the nation. And to impose that vision on groups that don't necessarily feel like that. So, and obviously there's a clear sense of purpose there, um, which gives the society some energy, but also uh, you see re-education camps and you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people being being jailed in order to impose that vision. Of what a of what a, a coherent nation is, so yes, yeah, I, I still think there are you know this tussle between you know homogeneity and and, uh, and hybridity uh, is is a live one in, in probably every country in the world.
0: Well, couldn't you say? I mean, uh, you know, the nation state, you know, previous to Westphalia and the creation of of the nation state in Europe uh the world the, the primary sort of social organization political organization force were these um, in essence sort of dynasties and empires and and in um, your book um, uh, on the um, on the invention of China you do a wonderful uh, all your books do a wonderful job of really going back in history and providing that context but you talk about how uh, there was really no uh, clear concept of China until it was brought to by the west that historically Historically, there was this idea of sort of greater civilizations, and you talk about the Qing during the Qing dynasty. There was the Inner Asian Empire and the Qing Great State, and and before the Qing, you had the Ming, and people considered themselves uh, somehow uh, citizens or subjects of 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 the Ming Empire. But um, but why the nation state came to be developed and so successful is is. And I'm guessing it was a very efficient and effective way of organizing society and uh, to achieve, you know, to to actually propel society, at least in terms of its uh, creation of wealth and 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 power. And uh, a successful nation state might be one that is uh, to be more efficient, is more uniform and more homogenous. So the fact that under uh, the Communist Party and then even more so under Xi Jinping, there's a focus on homogeneity and everyone speaking the exact same language or dialect, and everyone learning the exact same curriculum in school, and one correct version of history. You could see that, just like uh, any other thing, it's creating one standard that makes the you know much easier to organize and and control a society. Does that make sense, sir? Or-
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I I think this idea of how you organize a a state and a society uh, came from European roots in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, And it was adopted by Chinese intellectuals in that period because they saw these European states as being so powerful. You know, they, they they had generated empires. They were able to project military force halfway around the world. Um, and, you know, this anxiety, you know, gave rise to the belief that, you know, in this competition between races, that the, the yellow race in their own language was going to become extinct at the hands of the white race. And so it was literally a battle for survival. And so therefore you know, in order to defeat the white, they had to um, adopt some elements of of its culture. And of course the, the great shock was the 1894, 1895 war with Japan. Um, when this supposedly inferior society sort of defeated uh, the great Qing Empire um, and had done so because it had adopted so many of these sort of Western ideas about nation and, as you were saying, a single language um, and literacy and and, and all the rest of it. Um, And so it was just a sort of, you know, a, 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 a massive example you know, so that if China or so, well, you know, and then we can debate what we call the country, but instead if China is going to survive, it, it has to adopt these same uh, techniques as well. Um, and so you have a transition. And this, I guess, is what the book is fundamentally about, is that you have to imagine or have to remember that the Qing Empire, Qing Dynasty or the Qing Great State was actually a Manchurian Empire. It was, It was, you know, the people at the heart of it were from Manchuria, outside the Great Wall. And they had occupied the Ming state, what you might call core China or China proper, um, hundreds of years before, and so that the, the Chinese nationalist revolution is like is turning this empire inside out, so it ceases to be a Manchu empire and it becomes a Chinese empire um, and inherits all the territory ultimately um, around it. Um, And so, you know, all the questions about, you know, who is Chinese and where is China, um, these were very, very live, very important issues um, around this time. And and even even to the present day, I guess.
0: Thank you for listening.
1: We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.